Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Sunday, March 10th, 2019. Welcome back to the IO College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and we're going to spend some time on each of the top seven leagues, the Big Ten, Big 12, ACC, SEC, the Big East, the American, and the Pac-12 in this podcast. I promise. Uh, but what I wanted to do is start with what seemed uh, to be the Twitter debate of Saturday night, and that's whether Belmont should receive an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament after losing to the Murray State John Morants in the title game of the OVC tournament. I want Belmont in. You already know Norlander wants Belmont in. The Bruins are 26-5, 45th in the net, 54th at Ken Palm, 59th at Sagarin. And my argument in the Bruins' favor is a simple argument. Simply put, I'd rather see a 26-win Belmont team that was on a 14-game winning streak before it lost Saturday night in the NCAA tournament uh, than I would you know, like to see an undeniably mediocre power five team that spent the past two months losing more than it's won. There's no way to argue teams that just stack one loss after another after another are good. But Belmont might be good. They have so few opportunities to prove it, it's impossible to know for sure, but they might be good. So I'd rather include a might-be-good Belmont team than a definitely mediocre power five team. That's my bottom line. Resumes uh, be damned. But Jerry Palm does not have Belmont in the field right now. Joe Lenardi does. But Jerry Palm does not, so Rick Burr going to be sweating this thing out until Greg Gumbel breaks the news on Selection uh, Sunday, a week from today. So, um, Norlander, anybody who listens to this podcast regularly knows nobody loves Rick Bird more than, than you love Rick Bird. So, uh, this is where I'm going to shut up. And if you can, and I know you can, please make the case for Belmont to get an at-large bid to the 2019 NCAA Tournament. All right, let's 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 talk this thing out here. Um also, we'll get to momentarily Furman and Lipscomb, who have at-large cases like Belmont, fell short. Lipscomb, like Belmont, lost in his title game. Furman fell in the SoCon semis against another team that isn't quite getting enough run, I don't think, for its at-large case in UNC Greensboro. But I'm tossing Greensboro to the side. Let's see if they beat Wofford, who is right there next to my heart, <laughs> uh, alongside Belmont, of course, the Terriers. Uh, if Greensboro loses in the title game, we'll get to them uh, and talk about them on Wednesday. But with Belmont. So a few things here. Uh, I, I largely agree with what you said, Parrish. And I don't ever foresee anything's possible. But I've, I've held this opinion f- as long as I can remember watching college basketball. And you know what? I hope you and I are doing a podcast 20 years from now, Parrish. You might not hope it, but I do hope it. And I I hope that if that's the case, or regardless of wherever I am, if I'm so lucky to still uh, still be kicking here, I'll still have the same opinion when it comes to this stuff. And I think a lot of people have this opinion. And frankly, this is a healthy, necessary discourse because I don't believe if um, 
the invested college basketball fan and the informed college basketball media didn't uh, drive this, you would you would have an even uh, more monotonous field uh, of 68 of, in previous years of 64 with the NCAA tournament because um, I think the perspective on mid-major teams who lacked opportunities, uh, we have helped push the committee in some regard. And I will give the committee and the NCAA some credit here as well. Like They've, they've evolved to their own credit uh, slowly but surely. Um, but the fact is, you know, teams like Belmont are not getting a lot of opportunities. Teams like Furman, I know for a fact Furman tried to schedule South Carolina and Clemson, and both those schools said no. If Furman has a road win against Clemson, they're in the field, even with a loss here. But they don't have it because they didn't get the opportunity. That kind of perspective, I think, is necessary in the committee room. As Parrish mentioned multiple times with me on CBS Sports HQ over the weekend, the bubble is destined to shrink. It is the very nature of this thing as we get bid thieves as we move closer towards Selection Sunday. Belmont has a strong case, but not a slam dunk case by any means. You mentioned Palm's got him out. Lunardi's got him in. If you check out bracketmatrix.com, I think you're going to see an interesting split as the week continues to move along there. I think some will stand firm that Belmont's going to get in. Others will say, say that they don't have the case. They, from the metrics that you referenced, it's not across the board. Like they're not a top 35 team in all the metrics. Like, you know, it's just, you know, they're hovering around, you know, 50, you know, basically. So, okay. Now, they have a very healthy quad one and quad two, Mark. I believe it is still five and three. Let me check that real quick as we get rolling here. It is. They're five and three in quad one and quad two with limited opportunities. Um, I spoke with Rick Bird prior to them losing. He, I respect him for this. I mean, he's like, I'm not going to campaign if we lose. The, the committee doesn't give a damn what Rick Bird thinks. Um, so you're just not going to hear me out there. <laughs> and if we record this podcast and Monday comes along and Rick Bird's like on first take, then first of all, <laughs> that'd be incredible. But I'll eat my words, but we're just not going to see that. What hurts Belmont in the eyes of many is the fact that they played 17 quad four games. Now, part of that's because of the league that they're in. Part of it's because, frankly, from a scheduling perspective, they are hampered a little bit. I will also note, and you know what, Parrish, if you and I have to sing this song every podcast up until uh, next week on Selection Sunday, then damn it, let's harmonize because a lot of teams that would be in position to make the NCAA tournament wouldn't go 17-0 against quad four teams. They, they could very well lose one or two of those games. Belmont didn't lose any of them, so they should get some amount of credit for that. And if you want to say that their resume doesn't stack up to other power conference teams because they have such, such a hefty number of quad four games, I'd buy some of it. But let's also remember that it's no guarantee that just because you play quad four opponents, plenty of those games on the road, you're going to win them. It's just not the case. Murray State, by the way, looked pretty damn good in winning that game, 19-0 in quad four games and Murray State had even less of a chance than Belmont had it lost that game. As we entered into Sunday, Murray State 44, Belmont 45th in the net. Belmont also has 12 road wins, and as I tweeted out, that is more than Kansas, Texas, Minnesota, and I think it was Indiana combined. There's even another team where you can swap out. You can swap out Indiana, throw another bubble team in there. You can throw in a team like Kansas. And uh, you know, not all road opportunities are obviously made equal. But 12 road wins is a hell of a lot, and that should be taken into account as well. And then also, th- there's a metric that's that hasn't been taken into a lot of consideration as of late. But there's a there's a metric called wins above bubble, and it it essentially takes your resume and who you are as a team and says, okay, you know, with what you've done and you measure it against uh, uh, an average bubble team, right? How how likely would you be able to win based on opponent and venue? Um, and 
Belmont's not great, but it's not terrible. It's above zero uh, entering into Sunday. That needs to be taken into account. It was 0.9 wins above bubble. That's better than Indiana. It's better than Baylor. It's better than Syracuse. It's better than TCU. It's better than Seton Hall. It's better than Arizona State. Better than St. John's. Better than Florida. Better than Furman. Better than Texas. Better than Lipscomb. Better than Alabama. So for the reasons Parrish mentioned and some of the statistical things I brought here, I think Belmont's worthy of a real solid look. And I'm even okay. I think they actually are deserving of skipping Dayton, GP. But if you want to shoot them off to the first four, that's fine. Um, I can't remember if it was you that tweeted or not. I was, I was losing track of all this. Um, but someone's tweeted something to the effect of, like, send them to, send them to Dayton. Have them go match up against one of these power conference teams and let's see how they do. Because they'd have a real good shot at winning. <laughs> one coach told me about three weeks ago, only an idiot schedules Rick Bird. Now, if you want to cite what Belmont's not done in the past, it's 0-7 in the NCAA tournament. I get that. I understand. But it's about what this team is this season. And I think most of our listeners realize that teams are not seeded or included or selected based on their history. You are evaluated on the environment of a single season, and it's this single season. I don't care if Belmont had made 88 straight NCAA tournaments and never won a game. To me, it is one of the... 50 best teams in college basketball, probably maybe even one of the 45 best teams. I think that is enough. And when you look at the number of wins they have and the lack of losses, I'm in. I'm in. And they played Purdue closer, by the way, on the road than even Indiana did. Um, we don't need to recite everything with Indiana, but um, thanks for letting me rant and ramble here. Those are my those are my quick Belmont thoughts. I have quickies on Furman and Lipscomb, but I'll, I'll wait. That won't be nearly as long on that. But uh, in terms of Belmont, GP, what do you got for me? Yeah, let's focus on Belmont here for a second because, yes, when I tweeted that, um, you know, put, let's put Belmont in the first four against one of these mediocre power conference teams and watch them beat them by 13 points. And immediately, I mean, th th there's always two responses to stuff like this, right? The people who are in favor of Belmont like, like it and retweet it a whole bunch. And then the other people are like, every year, Belmont's going in the NCAA tournament. People act like, you got to watch out for Belmont. And then they never... They never win. They never win a game. They've never done it. Like, Rick Bird might be a genius. He's also never won an NCAA tournament game. So, like, now we're certain this is the year. And I will say, to hold Belmont's NCAA tournament past against this team, in other words, to, to, to highlight they've never won a game in the tournament before, therefore this team will not win a game in the tournament this season, is a lot like my Wofford argument. You know, the, the whole point of the, the our Wofford back and forth, when you were insisting it was going to be a quad one win, and I was saying, you're out of your mind, it was rooted in, yo, they, they, they never qualified as a as – they'd never, according to what Kim Pom would say, they'd never been in a position to be a quad one win for anybody. So now, that like, for the first time ever, this is going to be the year. And as we've stated over and over again, you were right, I was wrong, and yes, for the first time ever, this was going to be the year. And the reason is because this is – this, this team's good enough to do it. I mean, way better than either one of us thought, even you, but still became good enough to do it. What Wofford had been for the past 10 years didn't matter to what Wofford is right now. And same thing with Belmont. I don't care if they've never won a game in the NCAA tournament. It doesn't mean that this team couldn't win a game in the NCAA tournament. And, and I'll just make it simple. I went to Jerry Palm's bracket, and the la he does not have Belmont in, and the last team he has in is Florida. Now, Florida is sitting here with 14 losses. And I know they play in the SEC. That if they played in the OVC, they'd probably have a, certainly have, a, a much better record. 
But the record they got is 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 includes fourteen losses. They're seventeen and fourteen. They're nine and nine in the SEC. I mean, you can't get more mediocre than Florida. And I say this with all due respect to Mike White, but like you can't get more mediocre than this Florida team. Like, they play at Kentucky this weekend. There was never a threat to win that game. There was never a moment anybody thought they were going to win that game. You start looking at Florida's resume. They're 3-11 and in Quadrant 1 opportunities, 3-1 and in Quadrant 2 opportunities. That means they're 6-12 and in Quadrant 1 slash Quadrant 2 opportunities. Meantime, Belmont just doesn't get the same types of opportunities. But they did get some. And they're 2-2 two and two in Quadrant 1 opportunities, 3-1 and one in Quadrant two opportunities, which means they are five and three, Belmont is, in quadrant one slash quadrant two opportunities. In other words, Florida, when given an opportunity to play in a quadrant one slash quadrant two game, went six and 12, won 33% of those opportunities. When Belmont, given the same opportunity, went five and three, won 63% of its quadrant one slash quadrant two opportunities. And, And yeah, Belmont's got some bad losses on its resume, two of them. But, but so does Florida. They both have two quadrant three losses. So, listen, nobody's a bigger fan of Jerry Palm than I am, but I don't know how you can look at these resumes and think that Florida is more deserving of Belmont when you have to acknowledge that Belmont simply doesn't get as many opportunities to get quad one or quad two wins, but that Florida's only got one more than Belmont does, and Belmont was much better from a winning percentage perspective when they did have the opportunity to play the type of games, Florida gets to play basically every game. How about this, GP? So, a few more things. One, Belmont didn't even have Nick Musinski in the game against Murray State. Now, given the final score, I don't think the committee is going to say, you know what, had Musinski been in the game, maybe they win. I'll note, he has been a top 15 un- indisputable freshman in the nation this season in terms of uh, statistical impact and efficiency. It's not even arguable. Dude's a stat monster. W- Dylan Windler, who is available and is on his way to the NBA, uh, look up in two, three years. It wouldn't shock me if Musinski is going to follow him into the league, so just keep an eye on that. That's not an insignificant thing there. Also, Bel- see, here Here's what I hope the committee discusses. I hope they discuss how much Belmont could not get in the non-conference, and yet it still managed to get a non-conference strength of schedule at 76. I think having it just a two-digit instead of a three-digit number will advance the conversation. Parrish, you said two bad losses. I would argue it's really only one, and... It's at Green Bay, a two-day turnover after they played at Samford and won an OT, then one at Green Bay, whatever, knocked the loss. The other, the other one that would qualify is Jacksonville State at home. Guess what? Jacksonville State, really good team that's going to the NIT that, that yes, that beat Belmont. Guess what? Beat Murray State. Jacksonville State's not even a terrible team. So I hope when they are looking at Belmont, they're actually evaluating what this team did and didn't have and – they're not going to get credit for this, but Belmont also got screwed by UCLA sucking. Like, if UCLA had played to its talent level and Belmont had gotten that win, it would easily be another high-level win that would amount to a better win on their schedule. They also kind of got screwed that Illinois State wasn't nearly as good as it was supposed to be. Now, they won't get credit for the fact that they scheduled like that, but um, had those teams played better, Western Kentucky, by the way, not nearly as good as it should have been, also on Belmont's schedule. So the Bruins are in a tighter spot because as some teams, and this is not just Belmont, this happens with a lot of teams, they try and schedule a certain way that it sets them up to be well-positioned, and the Bruins got, kind of got screwed just a little bit with all that. So, you know, just a, a few follow-ups to uh, to what you had there. Um, if you got more, fire it on me. Otherwise, I'll just roll off Furman and Lipscomb real quick here. Well, two things. One – and I'm just throwing this out there. Rick, Bird, if you're listening, you can do this or not do this. But here's what I would do if I were running the Belmont basketball program right now. I would change I would change 
Nick Musinski, Nick Musinski's name to Zion Musinski. <laughs> Tell the committee we were missing Zion Musinski, and they'll take that into account. It won't even be like you didn't even lose the game. Uh, right. I'm ready for the snark for sure. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you change his name to Zion and tell the committee you were missing Zion? If it works for Duke, why wouldn't it work for Belmont? It's not a bad tactic. That's it's not sure. a bad tactic. Before we get to Furman and Lipskin, um, quick story. I think you'll appreciate this. And I didn't tell you about it before we recorded because I wanted to get your reaction um, uh, on the podcast. So I got an email on Saturday before the Belmont-Murray State game from a guy named David. And David's been listening to the Island College Basketball Podcast for years, so shouts to him. And so he emails me, and he's telling a story about Belmont, right, and about the podcast. And he said he, he didn't remember the first hyperbolic thing Norlander ever said about Rick Bird, but whatever it was, it became the origin of our somewhat running Rick Bird joke, where Norlander talks about Rick Bird like he's Mike Krzyzewski, and then I mock him for it because, again, with all due respect to the GOAT Rick Bird, um, he is sincerely terrific, by the way. Um, he still never won an NCAA tournament game, like ever. Like Rick Bird and I have the same number of NCAA tournament wins at this moment. So anyway, Ouch. Um, every once in a while on this podcast, Rick Bird's name would come up and uh, Norlander would be raving about the genius of Rick Bird and I would sort of laugh and make jokes. And so this dude, David, who's listening to the podcast, he decided to actually like he, it just made him interested in Rick Bird in Belmont. Um, and so he decided to, to study Belmont's offense. Like, watch tape and stuff, right? And he really just became enamored with Rick Bird's offense. Um, he only became interested in it because of us. Then he dove into the film, and now he appreciates Rick Bird like like Norlander appreciates Rick Bird. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. I don't, I don't know where we're going here, but continue. David, who emailed me, David's brother is Dylan Windler's uncle. Huh. And David had long been helping Dylan's mother, Karen Windler, like prepare for Dylan's college by like setting up a college fund, not from a basketball perspective, just from like a tax perspective, because they didn't know he'd develop into a Division One basketball player. So David was um, for years advising, um, you know, Dylan Windler's parents on on, you know, on college plans and. Um, and then all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but at some point, Dylan Willard starts getting you know some attention from college coaches. Like it looks like he might really be a college basketball player, mostly from Ivy League coaches initially. Um, but he's getting attention, and so Karen Windler would every once in a while mention to our pal David, you know, which schools are starting to recruit Dylan a little bit. And then one day she goes, um, "Yeah, and uh, this school and that school and and Belmont called," and David's like, "Belmont, the Fighting Rick Birds, the Belmont Bruins." And Karen Wheeler's like, what? How do you know Rick Bird? And he says, uh, of course, how do I know Rick Bird? Of course, I know Rick Bird. Rick Bird's one of the top offensive minds in the entire country. And then he spends 15 minutes explaining to Dylan Windler's mom why Dylan Windler would fit perfectly in Belmont's system. So then every time Rick Bird would call the Windler's house, Karen would tell David, like, hey, your, your guy Rick Bird called last night. Long story, not so long. Dylan Windler just averaged twenty-one and eleven for Belmont, and it's possible. Wow! At least David believes it. Believes this is the case that this podcast played a role in Dylan Windler being at Belmont. Because if we never joke about Rick Bird, David never gets interested in Rick Bird, which doesn't lead to David selling Dylan Windler's mother on Rick Bird. In other words, the Ion College Basketball Podcast helped create this Belmont basketball team. And we won it in the NCAA tournament. How's that for a story, Norlander? We're out here influencing recruiting decisions, just like Larnell, but above board and totally legal. Hey, 
That's killer, man. How about that? Is that a story? <laughs> that is a uh, that shouts to David because that's yeah. I mean, we're talking we're talking four or five, six years ago. Then that, like it's really been trailing for a while here. Um, that's uh that's an incredible story. And yeah, Windler's legit prospect. I I think that he is getting drafted. So that is incredible. And as Murray State and Belmont were playing out, um, and it looked like Belmont might might you know take uh take command there. Uh, we were looking at the potential for uh, no Ja Morant in the tournament, and I thought, well, you know, but we will get Dylan Windler no matter what, and he's a real NBA dude, um, and we'll wait and see because if he gets in, he the way that Belmont plays a four-out, one-in style, um, in, in very short here, I'm not going to break down the Belmont offense, Rick Bird, like, a while ago. Now, he didn't invent this style, but he was really one of the college coaches in on this before the rest of the trend captured. Belmont almost never takes shots basically between – Eight and 15, 16 feet. It's just not their offense, and and because of that, um, you would think like, okay, well, they're 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 easier guard. They're actually not with the scheme they run, and it's extremely efficient. Belmont annually ranks as like a top three team in two point percentage, and yet you always know you got to guard the perimeter. So it's a that's a fascinating uh, that's a pretty cool story. All right, real quick. So Lipscomb, they lose in. Uh, Crazy dramatic, like GPs in Charleston right now. I don't know if you got a chance to see the game, but the the Lipscomb Liberty Ace on final was the best championship game of the weekend. Now, Lipscomb ha- had control, and then there was like an epic flop by this dude named Scotty James, who's like this big boy for Liberty. Um, whoever Liberty gets in the first round, uh, uh, be ready for Scotty James. Guy is uh, an absolute hoss. So Lipscomb loses. Now Lipscomb. Also, so Liberty, congrats to you. You would have been a real long shot, but also, like, you know, it would have been just worth a passing mention because Liberty, like Belmont, uh, defeated UCLA this season. So Lipscomb doesn't get in. Now, I think Lipscomb's destined for the NIT, which is unfortunate because it, it, it is a it's a good program. Casey Alexander got to the, the team to the NCAAs last season, but... It it has been swept by its uh, by its rival Belmont. You know, people talk about UNC Duke being a rivalry because of its proximity. Um, there are no two schools closer to each other in Division One than Belmont and Lipscomb, and they used to share the same conference, the A Sun. Now Belmont's in the OVC, but they still play twice every every uh, every November and December. Belmont won both of those games. Now the other losses for Lipscomb, there's only one bad one at Dunk City. Otherwise, two to Liberty. It's an NCAA tournament team, and then four at Louisville, 17 at Clemson, and then just the Belmont one. So Lipscomb actually has a pretty uh, compelling resume, but it's behind Belmont in the pecking order. I can't foresee. I would love to be shocked by this parish because you know yeah, what? The it eight, ain't happening. Say it again? It ain't happening? This ain't happening. Like, I know. Bel- Belmont's got a real shot. Anything below Belmont ain't happening. I know. So um, – I hear you, and and yet when we look around at the uh, at the mid, at the major conference uh, candidates there, it's just a bummer because you love to see it. Because you know what, the A Sun, the OVC, and the SoCon, like we just don't have years like this where you have those kind of one bid leagues producing tops multiple top seventy teams. And in the SoCon, we had three of them. Furman goes down to UNC Greensboro. Furman was in. Palm's bracket before that outcome. I don't know if he has updated it as we are recording this podcast or not. Now, Furman, they're not helped by the fact that Loyola Chicago got knocked out early. They're not helped by the fact that Villanova, which started to make that win look really good, came back down to earth, which is unfortunate. I already mentioned some of the scheduling things they ran up against. They finished 25-7. and 
the losses at LSU, at East Tennessee State, top 75 Ken Palm team, uh, against UNC Greensboro twice, that might end up being the auto bid, obviously at Wofford, and then home to Sanford, which is a, which is a bit brutal. They had to schedule a few uh, non-D1s. Furman was boosted higher in some brackets than I actually expected before the loss here. But unfortunately, if um, if Wofford beats Greensboro, you talk about a team with, with a real solid resume that's not getting enough. Greensboro's losses are LSU, Kentucky, Wofford twice, and Furman. And those were on the road. Like, Greensboro has a really strong case. They're just not going to get three out of the SoCon. I wish they did. But shout to Furman. Shout to Lipscomb. I wanted to give him a little bit of love. I, 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 I would love Parrish. I would love to see either of those schools pop up and be getting sent to Dayton. It would just it would stun me. I, I can't see how that's going to happen. In a just world, I think they get sent there, but it's just not going to be enough. Belmont, I would, I would rank them right now. I would rank them Belmont, I, th- I think Furman, and then Lipscomb, uh, but there's a little bit of gap between uh, one and two and three there. Yeah, Furman and Lipscomb, they're just not going to get there uh, for all of the reasons that, that are, are well documented. Uh, Belmont, I think, has got a real shot because it's got not only a resume. Again, I can't, I can't stress it enough. They went five and three in quadrant one, quadrant two opportunities. Florida went six and twelve in the same opportunities. Florida thirty three percent winning percentage in those games. Uh, Belmont sixty three percent winning percentage in those games. So if you put Florida in over Belmont, all you're doing is saying, well, Florida had more opportunities, you know, because they play in a Power Five league. It's based on nothing more than league affiliation. And your point about Belmont, um, you know, being perfect, undefeated in quadrant four games, people just assume you're supposed to win every game you're supposed to win. And it's just, the basketball doesn't work that way. Um, you know, the, the analogy I've used over and over again, Steph Curry is supposed to make every free throw. Like when you step, when he stepped to the free throw line, and, and if I paused it and I said, okay, you think he's going to make this or not? Every time you'd say, yes, I think he's going to make it. Because saying no would be stupid. He still misses one out of every 10. So the, 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 the idea that, well, you know, yeah, they won all these quadrant four games, didn't lose any, but whatever. Like that, that, that is worth something. It's not the same as being, you know, 12 and two in quadrant one games. But it is worth something, and either way, at the top of their schedule, they perform better than a lot of power conference teams um, performed at the top of their schedule. Put Belmont in, and uh, my condolences to Lipscomb and Furman. They're just not going to be able to, to get there. So every conference championship that wasn't settled before this weekend was settled this weekend. We're going to pop through the top seven in a moment, but first, listen to this. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So every conference championship that wasn't settled before this weekend was settled this weekend. And what I want to do, I think, is just pop through the nation's top seven leagues in the order that Ken Palm has them ranked. And we'll discuss each for however long we want, which is usually longer than we should or anticipated. So let's start um, with the Big Ten. Um, it is Ken Palm's top-rated league this season. Purdue won at Northwestern on Saturday. Michigan State completed regular season sweep of Michigan. So the Boilermakers and Spartans are co-champs, which is Kind of wild, given the the circumstances surrounding both of those teams. Purdue lost four starters from last season, still league champs. And Michigan State was supposed to be good this season, undeniably. But they lost two players early to the NBA draft. 
last season, and then they lost two starters midseason this season. Still league champs. So I think Matt Painter is going to be Big Ten Coach of the Year, and I got no issue with it. But you could make a case for Tom Izzo as well. Either one of those guys could get it. Both those guys did tremendous jobs. Yeah, I, 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 I Matt Painter for me, he wins it. Um, all right, here's here's my take. Here's my takes on the Big Ten. I'm going to try and roll through this real quick here because I, I don't I do I swear to God I don't want to take ten minutes per league. Michigan State. I don't think it's out of the one seed picture. It's twenty five and six. Now that's more losses than any other team that's in the one seed picture at this point. It obviously would need to win the Big Ten tournament. The committee will not take conference inf- affiliation into account as it shouldn't, hundred percent. But it would be weird, and I don't think unprecedented. Something's flickering in my brain. I feel like we had this discussion either last March or the March before. If there has ever been a team in let's just call it the Ken Palm era because that's what we would have the ability to evaluate that would win the regular season and postseason conference tournament titles and the best league in Ken Palm and not get a one seed that's what would happen if Michigan State won the Big Ten tournament and landed on the two line I feel like that would be unprecedented but maybe I'm wrong. Sparty currently projects as a two seed. Uh, credit to Purdue for what they've done. Um, I think they've actually overachieved to a certain extent, but the metrics have liked them. I don't know what I will do with them in the bracket. I need to see how, who they get lined up against and, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm a seller on Michigan, just you know, projecting forward. I, I don't foresee myself picking them beyond the Sweet 16. And then, you know, Ohio State uh, almost beats Wisconsin, Wisconsin, whatever. I feel like they're locked on the four line. So let's just get to the bottom real quick here because Iowa's a disaster. It's going to be in, but Iowa just cannot handle anything right now. <laughs> like, it's, it's a joke. Uh, shout out to Chris Hassel, our colleague at CBS Sports HQ, who's an Iowa fan. He wants this team. He thinks this team shouldn't even be in the NIT at this point. Like, he keeps hitting me up being like, are, are they in danger now? I'm like, no, man. They're going to the tournament. I'm sorry. He doesn't want them in, but the Hawkeyes are going to be in. Uh, Minnesota will be in as well. Let's get to Indiana and Ohio State. They play each other in the Big Ten 8-9 game. Winner gets Michigan State. Loser has to be out of the tournament. Sorry. I already have an issue with Indiana, period, 17 and 14. If they're 17 and 15, it's done. There's just no way. It's too many losses. I know all the quad one wins they have, but we have never seen a team ever have as many as 15 losses uh, and and only as, as few as 17 wins and get into the field. Uh, in terms of the above 500 margin, Palm was saying on HQ over the weekend that that's not happened. It's just it's it, right now Indiana shouldn't even be in the field. Ohio State, a little bit of a weird thing here. So they dropped three in a row without Caleb Wesson. Caleb Wesson expected to play when uh, they play Indiana in, uh, in the Big Ten. I guess it's technically the second round. If Ohio State loses that game, I don't think you can put them in. At that point, they'd be 18-14. and 14. Best win uh, at Cincinnati, which is good. Creighton, uh, okay, maybe they get into the field. Maybe they won't. Um, non-conference wasn't exceptionally good at all overall in terms of the teams they played. Overall, you know, non-constrict, the schedule, stuff like that. And then if you start just running down the teams they beat, forget league affiliation and all that stuff. Uh, um just if you start looking, you say, okay, well, they got, uh, they got, let's see, Nebraska, okay? They got, um, well, they got Indiana, but then they lost to Indiana, and they got Northwestern, Rutgers, all right? They beat Iowa, but a lot of people beat Iowa. I think the loser of that one's got to be out, Parrish. Um, I say if the winner of that one, Indiana or Ohio State, is able to upset Michigan State, then you're in no matter what. Indiana would have have three wins over Michigan State in that point, and um, even with 
Ultimately, it'll probably land on 15 losses. I don't think there will be any keeping the Hoosiers out because they will have accumulated so many top-end wins that I don't think the committee is going to be able to, to stop themselves from doing that. But I also think it's unlikely. I think Michigan State's going to win no matter if they face the Buckeyes or the Hoosiers. Um, you mentioned Michigan State in its attempt to get a one seed in the NCAA tournament. It's possible. I think unlikely because Gonzaga probably got one wrapped up. Even, even with a loss in the WCC tournament, but I don't see them losing the WCC tournament. Perhaps they wouldn't have it if they lost, but I don't think they're losing. It's like, no, but they never got threatened in the WCC all season, even in road games, so I don't think they're going to lose one on a neutral court. Virginia, I do think, has got one wrapped up. Yes. Anything could happen to them in the ACC tournament. They're still going to be a one. And then I think as long as Tennessee or Kentucky wins the SEC tournament, um, and maybe even LSU, although that's a complicated situation for reasons we've discussed, um, I think if Tennessee or Kentucky wins the SEC tournament, either one will be a one seed. And then Duke or UNC, you know, it'll, it'll come down to, you know, if Duke goes and wins the ACC tournament with Zion, they're going to be a one. If UNC wins the uh, ACC tournament, they're going to be a one. So I just don't think there's going to be a room for Michigan State. Uh, we'll see. Um, Michigan State uh, gets to be co-champs in the Big Ten because of that win over Michigan. And uh, listen, I still believe Michigan is really good, but they haven't been really good lately. Six and four in their past ten games heading into the Big Ten uh, tournament. So um, that's a team that started, I think, 17-0, and uh, but they have not yeah. been nearly as good since that start. Six and four past ten games with two losses to shorthanded Michigan State, a loss to Penn State, and a loss to that uh, awful Iowa team. Uh, you have reference. Let's go to the Big 12. Uh, Kansas State and Texas Tech both won this weekend, so they're co-Big 12 uh, champions, um, which is, uh, I think, interesting on a couple of different levels. A, just anybody other than Kansas is, makes it interesting. Um, but Kansas State wins this uh, despite you know dealing with a Dean Wade injury. And I don't know if you saw this earlier, but he's now listed as questionable for the Big 12 tournament uh, because he's got – a soreness in his foot, so we'll see what happens there. But they suffered injuries to to key players, and and still were able to 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 earn at least a share of the Big Twelve title. And you can't overstate the job that Chris Beard did. Now we've talked a lot about Chris Beard, so we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it. But you know, Texas Tech is if it's not the hardest job in the Big Twelve, it's one of the hardest jobs in the Big Twelve. Um, you know, Bob Knight is maybe the greatest basketball mind ever. He coached six full seasons at Texas Tech, never finished higher than third in the Big Twelve. Never went further than the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. Chris Beard in year two at Texas Tech goes to the Elite Eight. In year three at Texas Tech, just his fourth year as a Division One head coach, he is a, a co-Big 12 uh, champion. He's got a team ranked in the top ten. They'd be a two-seed in the NCAA tournament if it started today. And he does all this despite losing five of his top six scores from last season's team. They were picked seventh in the preseason. I really do think if we were voting um, National Coach of the Year right now, um, the vote, at least my vote, uh, would be given to Chris Beard. Mine would be given to Kelvin Sampson by the slimmest of margins because because he, he also lost a ton, um, and they only have two losses at this point. And I think Houston should be considered for the two line if they can win out and win the American Athletic Conference tournament. We'll get to the AAC in just a minute here. Um, echo a lot of what you just said there. Um, I I'll just quickly Iowa State. I mean, the, uh, the two big Iowa schools, they're just disasters. I mean, uh, Iowa State couldn't win at home over Texas Tech. There's not huge shame in it, but ISU was at one point 18-5. We look up now, it's 20-11. and 11. It, it, Its seed is dropping by the week. Um, we'll see what they can do in the Big 12 tournament, but I, I, it feels like that is just a lost team at this point. 
Texas, Oklahoma, and TCU are the teams to focus on here because those are the three teams that will decide whether the Big 12 sets a record, and the record would be getting eight teams in a 10-team tournament into the Big Dance. It has never happened before. Texas, continue to be out of my face. You are 16-15. and 15. You lost by 13 at home to bubble team TCU. I don't see there's any way Texas gets in the field um, – done I just if you reach the big 12 title game perhaps we can circle back to this but let's just not talk about the Longhorns until or if they even get that far as for Oklahoma I think that it's I think it's probably good I think you have to figure it's good it beat Kansas on Tuesday it dropped at Kansas State wasn't a competitive game but there's enough there they had enough in the non-conference they have a win hello over Wofford uh, they will have West Virginia in the first Big 12 tournament game Oklahoma wins that got to figure they're safe and then TCU is a is one of those teams where they're 19 and 12. They are. Let me check where they are in the net. They're because I think they're hovering. Yeah, they are. See, see, they're they're 48th entering Sunday in the net. That's below Furman 41, below Lipscomb 42, below Murray State 44, below Mel, Belmont 45. Um, the net will not decide whether these teams are slotted accordingly or anything like that. But just you know, one point of reference amid uh, plenty of others. TCU three and eight in quad one. No terrible losses, um, but not not an inspiring. Uh, resume, only three road wins. 4-0 on neutral floor. Give them credit for that. They were part of the uh, Diamond Head Classic there just prior to Christmas. Um, they, I think they have a, a decent shot. I think they're well positioned. I think the Big Ten is our Big Ten. Big 12 is ultimately, GP, going to end up with seven teams. TCU needs to beat Oklahoma State on Wednesday, in my opinion, to feel like it's safe. But you got three teams there kind of floating near each other, and uh, my, my ultimate guess is seven. I'm going to say you're with me, by the way. You're feeling seven out of ten from this conference get to the big dance? I've been saying that for weeks when we discussed it on Inside College Basketball. How many bids will the Big 12 get? Um, I'd say seven, and then they'd say, um, "Well, whoa, whoa, then which team gets left out?" And I said, "I don't know, but it'll it'll work itself out. One of them will. It, just wait and see." And that looks like where we're headed. I think it'll be a, which is still incredible, seventy percent of your league in the NCAA tournament. But I never was on board with the with that. It was going to be eight. I knew that if you were projecting in real time, like on March first or February twenty fifth or January. 31st, whenever, you could make the case for eight, but I just thought eventually that that would take care of itself and cut somebody out, and I think now somebody's going to get cut out. Yeah, I agree. Although I will say, if TCU and Texas and Oklahoma, they all, won't all lose their first Big 12 games, but if they do, it's only going to amp up the volume, rightfully so, on the smaller conference schools that have gaudier records that you know went deeper in their conference tournaments and yet weren't able to move on overall. All right, third league is the ACC, GPTU. What we saw Saturday, obviously Duke-UNC is the headliner there. Uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts in regard to that. But also, um, you know, beyond the top three, we talked a little bit on HQ about Florida State and Virginia Tech, if either of those teams might be able to make a run. We know Justin Robinson won't be available for Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament. I find it very hard to envision any team other than UVA, UNC, or Duke winning the ACC tournament. And so with that, the question becomes, will we have three teams that can get onto the one line. I think the only way that possibly happens is if Duke wins out. Um, I, I feel like we're destined to talk Zion Williamson uh, every single podcast, so I don't want to make this all about Zion. But for you, as you scan the ACC, where it stands now, what we saw happen this weekend, what pops out most? I don't think they're going to get three, by the way. I just don't. Uh, again, the Tennessee or Kentucky is going to win the SEC. Gonzaga is going to get one. I, I think it'll be two. Um, it, it'll be – an SEC school, Gonzaga, Virginia, 
and then either Duke or Carolina. Um, you know, I, I know that the committee is going to want to put Duke as a one because if they've got Zion back and they're supposed to have him back on Thursday, um, quite clearly they're the you know they're they're one of the best four teams in the country according to every metric, according to the resume with Zion. Um, so like they're going to be looking to to give to give Duke uh, a one if it if it performs, and I I just don't think that that would Duke getting, I don't know. I just, I, I'll say the same thing about the ACC as I say about the big 12. I don't think the big 12 is ever going to get eight. It'll just get seven. I'm not sure how, but it'll just get knocked down to seven. Same thing here. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about (laughs) hypotheticals. I'll just assume that uh, on selection Sunday, the ACC gets no more than, uh, than two Duke finishes third in the league standings alone uh, in third, uh, two games back of both Virginia and North Carolina. Um, obviously the big story is Zion Williamson, you know, when will he play again? And I saw people speculating, I guess they've been doing it for two weeks now, but like, oh, you know, he's, this is clear. He's just not coming back. It is people who were either on Twitter or anywhere else talking about, well, this is out, you know, see, I told you Zion shutting it down. Those were just people talking who have no insight whatsoever to Zion Williamson or the Duke basketball program. There has never been a moment where anybody actually connected to that situation suggested to me that there was even a chance of Zion Williamson shutting it down. And beyond all that, there's just no way Mike Krzyzewski would say last week um, that he would be surprised if Zion played at North Carolina, but would also be surprised if he didn't play in the ACC tournament. You just leave that alone if you don't want to go there, or if that's even a possibility. You just say, you know, listen, Zion will play when he's healthy, and we hope we hope that soon. Like Mike Krzyzewski said last week, I don't think he'll play in Chapel Hill, but I do think he's going to play in the ACC tournament, and reiterated that on Saturday night. I'll be shocked if we don't see Zion Williamson on Thursday, and that'll be great for the ACC, great for Duke, and uh, and great for college basketball in general. But it is interesting, even with Virginia having – a, a season where it's probably going to be the number one overall seed for the second consecutive year and North Carolina winning another conference championship, um, doing so with Kobe white being awesome on Saturday night. Uh, Duke still remains the biggest story, not only in that league, but in college basketball. Uh, without a doubt it, it does. And you know what? <laughs> that'll be a, that'll be a, an amped moment when we get to see Duke and Zion return and we wait to see how strong he looks right away. Will he need a little bit of time to, to get back into the swing or not? Um, Duke, obviously, as GP mentioned, is the three seed. So if you're trying to envision right now how this all breaks down, um, good God, the, the ACC really split split in half. Um, you got the top three, and then, you know, I'm talking about, like, good teams and not. I mean, you, you get to uh, you get to the NC State-Georgia Tech line, I guess, and, you know, Georgia Tech, Miami, Wake Forest, Notre Dame, Boston College, Pitt, like, just, you know, just not good teams this year. So anyway, for Duke um, – Scheduled to play the late game on Thursday. They will be the final quarterfinal game. And so it'll be BC versus Pitt. I know GP is extremely excited about that 7 o'clock tip on Tuesday night. And then the winner of that will play Syracuse. Winner of that game will play Duke. That's the bottom half of the bracket. If Duke moves on, it would fa- it would face UNC in the semis if, if seeds held a form. If not, most likely the upset would come via Louisville if it's able to get past UNC. We'll wait and see if that actually happens. But... Uh, pretty much the entire sports world is rooting for UNC Duke, not just for obvious reasons, but they actually want to see this guy play against the Tar Heels. So hopefully we are gifted with that. Virginia's on the top half of the bracket, and that's the one. Florida State is the four. Um, 
Upset's obviously possible. We're now into bracket play. Virginia's involved. Come with your jokes, whatever. They're going to be old in about two weeks here. But I think UVA is going to have a, a somewhat easy uh, walk to the title game. And then, yeah, they definitely can get beat by UNC or Duke. We'll wait and see on that. Otherwise, not much to say other than Clemson. I still have an issue with them. Like, I give me... It, it will. These teams will not get matched up against each other um, extensively in the committee room, and we got to see what Clemson actually does. But give me Furman and give me Lipscomb before you give me Clemson. Partly because Clemson would not schedule Furman. You know what? If you if you opt to do that, then face the consequences because Clemson still has a horrid quad one record, among the worst, if not the worst, one in nine quad one opportunities. No bad losses. I don't care. You tell me that if Furman gets ten quad opportunity quad one opportunities, I I absolutely believe they are winning more than one of those games. So that's my that's my send off on the ACC. So the fourth best league in the country, according to Kim Palm, is the SEC, and LSU is your outright SEC champion. Twenty six and five overall, sixteen and two in the SEC. And I, I knew that they were probably going to pound Vanderbilt on Saturday night, and yet I had that on uh, my my big screen um, because I was just fascinated by the whole scene. As I wrote in a column over at CBSSports.com. Um, this is such a, a different deal than what we usually deal with with scandal because we don't usually deal with it in real time. Like my point being this. Louisville had to vacate a national championship because of stripper parties. But when Louisville was winning that national championship, we had no idea that that would ever be a thing. There was no hint of it whatsoever. And so the fans can celebrate it, you know, uh, you know, in in a, in in a normal way and the people across the country can appreciate it in a normal way. Same thing, Memphis, 2008, they had to vacate that final four appearance because of Derrick Rose's standardized test score. But while Memphis was making that run to the national championship game, and we were experiencing Chalmers for the tie and Dozier for the championship, there was no hint that we were going to have an, an issue with Derrick Rose's standardized test score. If you want to make the joke that you always knew Memphis was going to have to vacate because John Calipari and blah, 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 that's fine. I hear you. But there was no reason at that moment to think, oh, yeah, this is all coming down because of Derrick Rose's standardized test score. So Memphis fans celebrated normally, and college basketball appreciated what had happened normally. Um, this is d different because – on Thursday morning, we find out that Will Wade is, at least according to Dan Wetzel, and we got no reason to think he's not accurate, um, Will Wade's on a wiretap discussing a pay-for-play scheme involving Javante Smart. He's on a wiretap bragging about how he's done other deals for similar players, and they ain't never been as complicated as this one, joking about how Javante Smart's going to get more than the, the rookie minimum. And on Friday, you know, LSU suspends Will Wade. On Saturday, they hold Javante Smart out of the game. And then LSU goes and wins, like just blows Vanderbilt out. And, you know, they're cutting nets. And it looks like exactly every other celebration you've ever seen, um, except it's so awkward because, like, we know that this is probably, and I, I put quotes around the word probably, not definitely, probably, though, going to be vacated. We know that Will Wade probably is never going to coach at LSU again. We know that Javante Smart is possibly never going to play at LSU again. There's Javante Smart on top of a ladder yeah. cutting nets with seemingly no care in the world that this banner, if it is ever raised, will probably be brought down specifically because of a deal involving him. And the LSU fans are 
are chanting free Will Wade and fire the athletic director. The whole thing was just a just totally bananas. But either way, it is true. LSU, because Tennessee lost at Auburn, LSU is your outright SEC champ. I was rooting in a, in a joking but cynical and cynical way. I was rooting for them to do the unprecedented. Not only get up on that ladder, but like straight up, like have the banner raising ceremony right there. Because like we got we got to get the mileage out of this. Like we got hey, hey, we got to hey, get, hey, get hey, as many days as possible. We can. All right, let's yeah. go ahead and get that banner up now. <laughs> we got, can we get this up? Can we just have this thing hanging for like two months at least? Can we just can we please like just have it up there? Get the photos taken. Like the, you know they should have gotten it stitched on Friday. Get it done. Turn it. You're LSU. You're a you're a very powerful um, wealthy university. Football makes a ton of money. Get that stuff turned around. It would have been incredible. And yeah, by the way. Um, um, I don't remember the reporter who shared the video, but Joe Oliva, the athletic director, like he shows up at, at a point in which it was later than I guess he should have gotten there because, if, if, first of all, he's like he's like raising both hands, like acknowledging the crowd. They are <laughs> raining down the booze, and this isn't just with Will Wade. We don't need to get into the entire background here, but just this with how Oliva handled a lot of the less mile stuff. He, he is he has not been an athletic director that that fan base has grown to love, to put it kindly, over the past five or six years. And so I think fans obviously are a little bit misguided here. Will Wade is no martyr. Let's let's not let's not right. paint him to be that by any means. He is not. But um, the, that that's just one of those situations where. It's inevitable. You you sometimes see fan bases. They have an adversarial, one-sided relationship with an athletic director. It has reached a toxic point with that fan base. I don't know how long Oliva will have that job or whatever, but um, this only exacerbated that. Um, yes, I, LSU fans have reminded me all day on Sunday on Twitter that they hate Joe Oliva regardless of what it has to do with Will Wade. And I did have some LSU fans ask me two questions, and I want to address both of them. And it's not like a rant. I really do think like. They're asking these questions from a from a a sincere place, and and I think I have a a reasonable answer that per, perhaps they'll um I don't know maybe it'll change their opinion. That uh, one thing, like um how would the the one question is how how should we have reacted? Okay, you think it's awkward, and you and you laughed at us like celebrating this this SEC championship that is probably going to be vacated someday. We'll concede the point that it, that it's going to maybe be conceded someday, but like how, what were we supposed to do? Stand there with our heads down, ashamed. Like what you tell us, Parrish, how we're supposed to act. And I will say that's that's a fair point. Like I I I I think that you could probably go into that arena and say, you know what? I don't think all these dog guys are paid for. Although, like, keep in mind, Javante Smart was the third best recruit in LSU's class, and he was getting, according to Will Wade, an offer above the rookie minimum. So, uh, I'm not I'm not here to speculate, but there were two players in LSU's classes more heralded than Javante Smart. So take that for whatever you want. But either way, the fans are like, hey, listen, we're going to rally around these young people. They ain't got nothing to do with nothing. And this system's flawed to its core anyway, so who really cares? Um, we're going to go celebrate our team in this win. And that's fine with me. I would say the only place then, if you allow me to concede that point, then hopefully you, you'd concede this one. The only place where you're out of line is free Will Wade. Because like Norlander says, Will Wade's not a martyr. Will Wade is, is somebody you can agree with NCAA rules, not agree with NCAA rules, whatever. I'm against amateurism. You know where I stand on the subject. But the rules are the rules. And if you get caught um, doing what it appears Will Wade was doing, there is a severe price to pay. And so I don't know. I can understand how you can cheer for those players on that court because you've been cheering for them all year long. But I don't know how you could rationalize being critical of your university for suspending Will Wade because – 
Um, there, there's really nothing short of that that would have been acceptable from your LSU's perspective. Agreed. Well, I'll have one note here on Will Wade, a uh, quick thing sure. on the SEC, and then we can move on if you'd like. Um, so the NCAA tournament selection, in regard to Will Wade, like I, I, Parrish and I are on the same page. We don't think Will Wade is coaching again at LSU this season and then by extension ever again. I mean, certainly it's possible. I I want to say ever again because somebody asked me that and I say, hey, listen, Will Wade's only 36. Could he be 20 years removed from this? No, no, no. A- I'm talking LSU. Oh, yeah. He, he ain't never coaching LSU. Right. Again. No, no, that's no. That's not- what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So um, now here's what the selection committee has as an option here because GP, he did a great job flying solo. Uh, I never listen back to our podcast except when I'm producing, but I did listen back to the segment that I wasn't involved in. I was like, he's got it down. Good job. So good job on that uh, on that amended Friday episode there. But so my only my only thing is this, because Paris uh, mentioned it quickly. So if LSU loses uh, as the one seed in its its first uh, its first game of the SEC tournament, which would be, I think I don't have the bracket in front of me. I think that would be the Bama. Is it the, it would be the, I think it's the Bama or the A&M Vandy game. I can't remember. But anyway, regardless, it's a, it's a bad team. Um, that would inherently knock LSU down. But the selection committee can also make the decision that this team is not as strong without a head coach that got them to technically a 25-5 and record because they're 26-5. and They didn't have Will for one game. And knock them down another seed line. We'll see if that happens. I don't know. If that did happen... What would be inevitable is the onslaught of discussion, perhaps some criticism, perhaps some praise, that the NCAA Selection Committee, which, of course, is not an adjudicating body, it's not a governing body, would be doing that in the immediacy slash short term for <laughs> the Committee on Infractions Um I understand if you want to be cynical about it, but it, there actually is the uh, there is the space within the the selection committee's rulebook to say if you don't have a coach and we think that you, that is an impact on who you are as a team, then we can dock you. It, 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 LSU would have to lose a game it's not supposed to lose for that situation to exacerbate. Well, let's just see if we even get there. Real quick, Tennessee loses. I wrote a column. It's on CBSSports.com. Team still only has four losses. Still is in is is has the chance to be a one seed. feel like because Tennessee's dropped some games as of late, people are really selling on him. Do it at your own peril because it could not have had a better combination of three losses, period, at any point in the league than at Kentucky, at LSU, and at Auburn. Those are the three best possible losses if you've got to take three. So just kind of wait and hold on that. GP talked about Florida. Real quick, Bama's got to be done. They're 17-14. and 14. They, I don't. I didn't even agree with them being near the bubble to begin with. They've lost three in a row. They fell at Arkansas. It wasn't even close. They play Ole Miss on Thursday in the SEC tournament first round. They obviously need that. Um, I think Ole Miss is going to win that game. So just a quick, you know, trying to hit all the bubble notes with each of these big leagues. I think the Crimson Tide uh, are done, and that amounts to an underwhelming season given the talent that they have. Uh, one last thing on LSU, because I got this a lot, both on Facebook and Twitter, and it's just a point, again, I, I think LSU fans are asking it from a sincere place, but I do think there's an obvious answer to the question. And the question that they ask is, why, why us? Why are we suddenly um, the program that has to pay a real price for this? Why is our head coach suspended, but Bill Self is still coaching, and John Calipari's got multiple vacated Final Fours, he's still coaching, Um why is it when LSU gets good, we get got, and all these other programs just continue to go along, no problem? Um, you know, they, they point out Bruce Pearl still coaching, um, whatever. 
Sean Miller at this moment still coaching. We'll talk more about that when we get to the Pac-12. And the answer to that is um, is this. Your coach is on a wiretap discussing a pay-for-play scheme for a player. You can say whatever you want about John Calipari or about Nike's influence with big Nike schools and Nike recruits or about Sean Miller or about any other coach in America. Like, perhaps in the history of the sport – and I, but what I don't think you can say about any of them is that they're on a wiretap discussing a deal that they did to get a player, an offer they have on the table and comparing it to previous deals that they've done. I mean, I, I, perhaps some LSU fans, and it's not all, but just some, um, just have a blind spot for this. But I, 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 I can't say it any more clearly than the way I'm about to say it. Your coach has been caught doing something that, as far as I know, literally no other coach has ever been caught doing in this way. There is an audio recording, according to the FBI, there is an audio recording of your coach openly discussing a pay-for-play scheme that he is personally involved in and then comparing it to other deals he has done in the past. That's what makes this different. I really don't think that's hard to understand. Yeah, I don't know how else to respond to that. That's as basic as you could have possibly put it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it is what it is. And I'm not telling you Will Wade is the only coach who's ever done a, a pay-for-play deal. I'm not telling you he's the only one who's ever benefited from illegal recruiting. I'm not telling you he's the only one who's had his hands on um, on a, a, a presumed transaction um, to this extent. I'm just telling you he's the only one we know of right now who's on a wiretap admitting to it. And that's a big, big problem, and it's going to cost him his, his job and in, in, in some form his career. I agree. Last thing before we go, Big East. Uh, just uh, Calipari said after Kentucky's game that Reed Travis is not on track to play in the SEC tournament, and if he comes back, he'll be doing quote backflips. So just keep an eye on that. We'll see if we get any real updates. You know, Thursday, Friday. Uh, now Kentucky's been good without Travis, but you know we have a number of injuries in college basketball right now of significant starting players. Reed Travis is one of them. Wanted to update on that. As for the Big East Parish, I mean, I railed on. <laughs> I'm not trying to rail on this league. In fact, I tweeted out I tweeted out on Saturday, if I take any of these teams to make the Sweet 16 smack me, to which Dane O'Neill replied, will do. Uh, fair enough. I, I heard from some coaches in the league about this. They're like, oh, really, man? It's like that? I was like, actually, it is like that because I don't know what to make of this quagmire of a league. Every team's above 500. Uh, okay, that's a thing. Marquette is just downright inspiring. It was 23 and 4 and 12 and 2 on the morning of February 27th. <laughs> the only way it would not have, at minimum, gotten at least a share of the league title is if it lost its four remaining home, uh, four remaining games, and then it went out and it lost its four remaining games: Nova, Creighton, Seton Hall, and then blown against Georgetown on Saturday. Villanova, by the way goes three and five down the stretch and it wins the league outright it is four games ahead of the third place teams creighton seton hall xavier georgetown all of which are nine and nine st john's by the way is eight and ten in the league 20 and 11 overall has lost four of five was not competitive on saturday against xavier st john's is viewed as being somewhat comfortably in the field i have a hard time believing I, don't, I believe it. I have a hard time having that sit with me. If St. John's loses on Wednesday in the Big East uh, tournament in the 7-10 game, it will have lost three times to DePaul. 
GP, they had a horrendous non-conference schedule. I, w- I would, I would have to to map out the sixty-eight teams. But if you lose again to DePaul, should you really be in the field? That's going to be a big question. Potentially, St. John's becomes a bigger talking point if they don't win. They're probably going to win, but if they don't, three else to DePaul. Give me what you got on this conference. Um, I maintain what I said before. Like uh, Dayton seems destined to have one, if not two of them, and then it's just going to like there's going to be four of these teams that are just right near the cut line for better or for worse on the good side or the bad side. I mean, it's a mess. Just like you pointed out on the morning of February 27th. You know, I was in studio in New York, and one of our um, researchers, a guy named Andy Tulin at CBS Sports Network, who is a you know he's from Philly, big Villanova fan, right? And uh, so we're always talking Villanova. And I was like, you you realize Marquette wins this tonight? That's a that's at least a share of the Big East title. And then all they got to do is win one more game at any point, and um, that's an outright Big East title for Marquette. First one, it would be the first outright ever. And then of course they lost at Villanova. But whatever, you lose at Villanova, no big deal. Just go win, go beat Creighton or Seton Hall or Georgetown for crying out loud. Can't do it. 0-4, final four games. Villanova, like you said, not only outright champ, outright champ for the fifth time in a six-year span. And I bet you this is one where Jay Wright's like even a little embarrassed about it. Like He's like, I don't know. Like You, know, <laughs> you, you get your brains beat in by Seton Hall in the afternoon, and then you win the Big East outright because, because Marquette can't beat Georgetown? In Milwaukee, Georgetown, like in a four-day span, lost by 32 points to DePaul, Amazing. and it won at Marquette. What? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. The seeding for the tournament across the board, um, outside of the top two, wasn't even settled until until that final game that night. That's just. Hey, I'll be there. It's going to be uh, as it will. It to me, it seems like it is. Uh, more bubblicious of a Big East bracket as we've ever had. So uh, I'm intrigued for just the dumpster fire element of it all. And I will give credit. You know what? You know, like We're having a little fun here at the Big East expense, and rightfully so. But I will give credit to Seton Hall for what it's been able to do as of late. Miles Powell's been a stud. And they had dropped three in a row, but then they finished it up by winning against Marquette and Villanova. The Pirates safely in the field because they got that big-time win on the neutral floor against Kentucky earlier in the season. That's created a lot of really good mileage for their resume overall, so Pirates will definitely be in. So the sixth-best league in the country, according to Ken Palm, is the American Athletic Conference, and Houston is your outright champion thanks to an impressive win at Cincinnati on Sunday. 29-2 and overall, 16-2 and in the league, first outright league title since 1984. And they overwhelmed Cincinnati so bad on Sunday afternoon that Mick Cronin is, like, asking for football players to come practice with his team on Monday. What a year for Kelvin Sampson. You mentioned that he would be your national coach of the year right now, and uh, I got no issue with that. I wouldn't try to talk you out of it. I might lean toward Chris Beard, but if somebody else wanted to make the case for Kelvin Sampson, it is an easy case to make. This is a program that um, was obviously great when I was young, uh, but had been mostly whatever ever since. And he took that thing over and flipped it into respectable pretty quickly. And now it's just uh, it's awesome. Like, they've got a real chance to do whatever it is you want them to do in the NCAA tournament. Yep. Uh, they uh, 29-2, seventh in the net rankings as of Sunday. I don't think they'll jump higher when Monday comes because they're behind Kentucky, Tennessee, UNC. Don't think they'll leap there. Um, just uh, 10 road wins, uh, no bad losses uh, at Temple and home to UCF. Great 
great just run here for the American. Uh, Temple is not in for sure, but Fran Dunphy in his final season at Temple gets a win at home over UCF, a, a team, you know, UCF team that's comfortably in the field. And so the American, as we talked about on a trivia time on the previous podcast, is tracking toward four American Athletic Conference bids. We don't yet know who uh, Temple will play in the AAC because the lower rounds have to play out there. Memphis is the fifth seed. They will get Tulane. So I believe I don't have the bracket in front of me, but I would uh, I would think uh, with Memphis being the five, and then uh, Wichita is the six, and then South Florida and Tulsa come in at seven and eight. Uh, I guess Temple would have the seven eight winner. Um, but just get one more win and you're good for the the, but the The reason that win for Temple, and by the way, it wasn't just Temple needed to um, win on Saturday. It also needed Wichita State to beat Tulane for it to be the three and UCF to be the four. And you would think after Temple wins its game that that would be easy stuff because, like, Tulane hadn't beat anybody all year in the league. But Wichita State actually needed a corner buzzer beater, three-pointer, to beat Tulane. And so if that shot doesn't go in, then Temple's the four, UCF's the three. Because it went in, Temple's the three, UCS the four, and that is a massive, massive advantage for um, for Fran Dunphy's team. And the reason is because if you are the four seed, you are on Friday going to have to play Memphis inside FedEx Forum, where you would be an underdog. Like even though you're seated higher yeah. than them, you know Memphis and UCF have already played once inside uh, FedEx Forum. Memphis was the favorite and beat them by twenty. Memphis has already played Temple inside FedEx Forum. Memphis was the favorite, beat them, not by 20, but beat them. And so if you're the four seed, you were going to be an underdog in your quarterfinal game to a lower-seeded team. And so Temple being able to avoid that, I mean, here, here's what it means. Temple is uh, now gets to play um, either Wichita State or East Carolina on a neutral court in the quarterfinals, as opposed to playing Memphis inside FedEx Forum in front of like 16,000 people cheering against you. So you cannot, I mean, that's a big, big win for Temple. Definitely is a big, big win. And I'm, I'm interested to see how Memphis plays uh, it because just because it's in the building and then, you know, the fan base, as you have mentioned, that they're going to take over that building and then uh, Penny Hardaway in that kind of environment. Will we have a little bit of fun, potentially have a bid thief there? Don't know. I'm and really- that, that's all it is, is the possibility of a bit thief. Like, I tweeted this, and sometimes people will twist your words into, oh, so you think Memphis is going to win? No. If you told me right now to bet $1,000 Memphis wins the AAC tournament or not, I'd say no, of course not. But I ran the numbers on it. We talked about it briefly in, um, on CBS Sports HQ. Uh, the best team in, this, in the American is Houston. And according to Sagarin, Houston would be like a three-and-a-half or a four-point favorite over Memphis right now inside FedEx Forum. Second-best team, Cincinnati. It would be like a... According to Sagarin, two-point favorite over Memphis inside FedEx Forum. So that's the only reason this is a, rid, a real bid-stealing possibility is because Memphis is not the best team in the league. It's not even one of the two best teams in the league. But it, it is um, a tough out inside that building, evidence being that they've only lost twice inside that building all season. Once it was Tennessee, to Tennessee by 10, the other time to Cincinnati, and they were up double digits for 14 minutes to go and just like, you know, Jaron Cumberland was awesome and Memphis wasn't. But um, they're going to be a tough out in that building. That's all I've ever said. Uh, Memphis right now uh, has a has a net ranking of of 51. And so I'll transition yeah. to the Pac-12 here. Now, what's I'm, I'm, I want to see how we get these results over the next few days. And 
Arizona State 67. That's the point I'm getting at. The only other team, and I don't consider Georgetown in the mix, but the only other team that has a worse net ranking that is con- is considered like, you know, they got a, a, a faint hope for an at-large is Georgetown, which is 76th. I mean, that's just uh, that's too sour for my taste. Now, Arizona State gets a win, and we're going to get to Sean Miller in just a second here, but it got a win that it needed uh, beating Arizona on the road. I thought Arizona would win that game, and whoo! I was way wrong. GP had that right. He had the Sun Devils winning. So the notable results in the Pac-12. Washington dropping a game 55-47 to Oregon at home. Ken Palm ran the, as he does for every league tournament, he ran the simulations, and Oregon is the second most likely team to win the conference championship uh, in the bracket to Washington, even ahead of Arizona State. That just dings the Huskies' seed in a significant way. Washington is safe. They're going to be in Arizona State. They have a lot of things going for their resume, but the net is so low that I wonder if they will ultimately be okay. Granted, they don't drop their their first game in the Pac-12 tournament. We don't know who they're going to play yet. Uh, but if they get that, I think they're going to be in yet. But maybe maybe they get treated poorly in terms of how they're seated. Wait and see on that. I think the Pac-12 is set up to get two bids. If you had a situation where Oregon won the league championship, maybe. But you know what? Let's not speculate too much. We've done a lot of fun hypothetical stuff. Let's just see where we get with the Pac-12 when we do the podcast here later in the week. Uh, Other than that, the only thing to to talk about is the Sean Miller speech after Arizona got beat by its rival. Now, this happens. It gets posted. There's speculation. Here Here are my three things on this parish. One, what Sean Miller did isn't extremely unusual. Like, final home like first of all final home game senior night the coach speaks to the crowd a lot so that itself wasn't weird that happens all the time but two the choice of words he used and the fact that sometimes you have coaches speak before the game sometimes it's after it's program decision and then uh yeah the choice of words just you know there is no better fan base there's no better building than McHale Center it has been an honor to coach in this building for 10 years I don't have the exact quotes in front of me, um, but given the things that have surrounded that program and, and Sean Miller, it just is, it leaves up uh, plenty of speculation. Like, you know, why did he have to say that? And then, and let me lob this over to you, he does that and refuses to comment on it in the postgame presser. Like, totally within his right to do it, but Sean, what did you expect? Like, how are you going to do that no one was asking you to do that. You're clearly going to get asked about it. And it just, hey, for all we know, you know, this has been sorted out and and there is a separation coming. Or Sean Miller knows he is good and is just like, he's like, you know what, dudes, men, ladies and gentlemen, like, <laughs> I'm going to mess with you a little bit here because I know I'm okay. I know I'm safe. I know they don't have anything on me. I'm coaching here next year. So I'm going to have a little fun with everyone else at their expense. I don't know what he was thinking. It was a weird moment. Um, and and just certainly something that perked my ears up. Well, I mean, it, it got a lot of traction on social media because it was a weird moment, and he made it weirder. I, I don't know who is um, who he's taking advice from when it comes to public relations. Perhaps nobody, but man, um, he he could use some <laughs> because like he's handled some some things throughout this season. I've just seen in press conferences where he's just not doing himself any favors. As you point out, it's his right to handle. Uh, these moments however he wants to handle them but he doesn't help himself um there was one a few weeks ago when the television reporter from phoenix was there and they asked about you know all of this stuff 
And he was like, no comment, and you can drive back to Phoenix. It's just like, why do you want to look like a jerk? Like, you're, you're on some level, you're fighting for your job. You know, you've got a subpoena on the way, and who knows what's going to be on these wiretaps. And, you know, just I don't know if this is the time to be being short and difficult with people, particularly on camera, because the visual just didn't play well. And then this thing on Saturday, um, I, listen, the words he used were very specific, and they certainly – Given everything else that's going on in Arizona, I can understand why Jeff Eisenberg and Dane O'Neill and basically anybody else who covers college basketball pointed it out and was like, ooh, that sounds like a farewell. I think Pete Thamel did the same thing. Like, I can see why you might think that. I, I, I'm not willing to, to, to say that's absolutely what it was because I don't know. He could have just been like, all I meant is that it's been an honor to coach here for 10 years. You know, I don't get an opportunity to speak to our fans in such a big setting that often. I don't know when the next time will be. And so I just wanted to make sure they know I appreciate this. That's all. Like, that, that, it really might have just been that. He could but have and should have said that if it was that. Right. I'm sorry, what? Sorry, GP. He could have and should have said that at the press conference if that's what it was, though. Well, that's what I'm saying. So when you go to the press conference and you're asked about it and you say, I'm not going to comment on that, you're just like, I mean, pouring gasoline on whatever this is. Um, you know, at that point, you you do one of two things. You say, "Oh no, listen, um, I was just being, I was just speaking from the heart, off the cuff." Um, if people interpreted that as a farewell, that's not the way I meant it at all. I've got the number one recruiting class in America committed to come here next season, and I I can't wait to get those young men on pra- on campus. But first, we're going to finish out this season, and we're going to go try to win the Pac-12 tournament. Like, boom, okay, you just killed it. But when you say something publicly that sounds like a that people think sounds like a farewell, then you're asked to to expand on that or explain what it is you meant, and you go, "And eh, no, I'm not going to talk about that." It just it 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 <laughs> it enhances the speculation uh, to a new level. And I'll just say this: if Sean's already got it worked out with the administration, where they are going to part ways in whatever way at the end of the season. Then, then what? Then, then this this all makes sense. But anything short of that, he handled that yesterday terribly. It would be incredible though if like just things kept going along as they go along. And I know he's, he could well be under oath here in April and all that. But like, and then he just shows up next season. I was like, yeah, I just felt like doing it. Okay, man. Like, if that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. With all that you mentioned there, you're uh, you're absolutely on the money. Um. Uh, wrap up here. I want to just give shouts. Murray State, Gardner-Webb, Bradley, Liberty. Those are your first four teams into the NCAA tournament. And then by the time we podcast next, I think we got to, by the way, GP will settle this uh, right here on the pod. I think we got to do it Tuesday night late if you can. If you can't, we'll get it Wednesday morning. But SoCon and Mac, next two auto bids, those are coming on Monday night. And then Tuesday we'll have the Colonial. GP is there. Horizon League, NEC, Summit, WCC, and uh, I think those are the Tuesday ones. I think Patriot is Wednesday, if I have that right. But we'll have a, we'll have a bunch more. The, the tournament continues to fill up, and it will not have, unfortunately, uh, sour note here, two of the greatest scorers in college basketball history, Mike Dom, Chris Clemens, both got bumped. Neither of their teams, South Dakota State, nor the Camel Fighting Camels, I think we might have to alter the intro here with the Campbell season officially over Parrish. Unfortunately, those dudes will not be in this bracket, which is undeniably a bummer. It is a, a bummer. Um, Tuesday night makes sense to me late because, as you mentioned, I'm in Charleston right now. I've got the CAA semifinals 
on Monday. I'm doing Sideline CBS Sports Network. And then the championship game on Tuesday, CBS Sports Network. So at some point, after the award ceremony and everything else that happens after an auto bid is um, awarded. And I'm actually looking forward to this because I've obviously been to a whole bunch of conference tournaments. ACC, SEC, Big 12. I think I've been to all the big ones. Um, I've never been to a one-bid league. I've never seen an auto bid get rewarded. And I was talking to the Hofstra staff earlier today just in the lobby of the hotel. And, you know, like the SEC tournament, like it's like I'm going to watch it in the ACC. I can't wait to see Zion. But there were you – know, Every every good team's in, and every bad team's not. And the two teams that are going to play in the championship game are almost certainly going to be in the NCAA tournament no matter what. That's true in the SEC, Big Ten, ACC. Rarely does it happen where we've got a team playing in the championship game of one of those tournaments where if they win, they're in the NCAA tournament, and if they lose, they're not. Um, it happens sometimes, but it, it's not normal. Whereas on Tuesday night, I'm going to be here in Charleston, and, and i got two teams. And they're going to be playing each other. And the winner gets to go to the NCAA tournament. Like, really, you know, fulfill a dream and, and create a lifetime memory. And the loser just doesn't. And you, you cannot get uh, the stakes any higher in championship week. And so um, I'm fired up. I'm fired up for it. And uh, and then, and, you know, the game will be over. And then I'll come back to my hotel room and we'll sit here and talk about whatever we want to talk about. Maybe, maybe Camel Fighting, maybe Leaky Black. Maybe. Well, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I uh, hope we... Hopefully uh, fulfilled and whetted the appetites of all the listeners there. It's uh, just an incredible time of year. Someone tweeted at us said, like, when I see that Missouri Valley title game on CBS on Sunday, that's when I know, like, March really hits me. I kind of feel that. I dig that as well, although Saturday night with the OVC title game was really fun. And watching these watching these small conference tournaments, man, it is just it is an awesome, awesome time of year. We'll see if we get any controversy. I hope not. We'll see if we get any buzzer beaters. I hope so. Uh, big moments, special moments ahead. And as we – you know, see what uh, see what the bubble and the seating and all the storylines give us. We'll be back here with you on uh, late Tuesday night. Or for those who like to save it for your Wednesday commute, you know we got you for Wednesday a.m. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to Larnell. And remember, please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars, nice comments. It really is all we've ever uh, – all we've ever asked of you. So if you've done it, thank you. If you haven't, please go do it. Shouts to Dylan Windler's uncle's brother and Karen as well. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday night. Till then, take care.